Well, good morning. Good morning. Uh, why don't we go ahead and grab a seat uh, where you are seated, and we will get started this morning. As Pastor Nancy mentioned, my name is Jeff Cuse. I uh, teach at Seattle Pacific University, and also my family uh, worships here as well, and always a privilege uh, to come and uh, preach this morning. Uh, I'm going to read through uh, verses 1 through 4 of Psalm 23, which is uh, the series that we are going through together as a church, uh, and uh, really landing on verse 4 for this morning, and then pray, and then give you some instructions on how the sermon is going to go this morning. There's a little bit of uh, fill in the blank you'll see in the bulletin, and I'll, I'll give you a guideline of how that's going to go. First of all, let's begin with the Word of God in Psalm 23, verses 1 through 4. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Will you pray with me as we ask the Holy Spirit to really open this for us and get into our discussion with the Lord about what this will teach us today? Let's pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks for your word that carves out space in our lives that your living water can flow through. Open our hearts and our very beings to hear you, Holy Spirit, this morning. May you wrap your holy word around us with hoops that are tighter than steel. Bind us together for your sake. And be a lamp unto our feet, O Lord, in times of shadow in the valley of death. Lead us as your congregation to be that light, we ask, as we continue to work through both the answerable and unanswerable questions of darkness in our lives. We lift all this up to you, Lord, in your name. And all God's people said, amen, amen. I want to begin this morning uh, with a quote uh, from one of my favorite uh, biblical scholars, Walter Brueggemann in his wonderful commentary on the Psalms called The Message to the Psalms. And in your bulletin, there's one line from it, uh, but I'm going to read the whole uh, passage I wanted to look at to begin our time. The gain of the study of the Psalms is that it shows how the Psalms of negativity, the complaints of various kinds, the cries for vengeance and profound penitence are foundational to a life of faith in this particular God. Much Christian piety and spirituality is romantic and unreal in its positiveness. As children of the Enlightenment, we have censored and selected around the voice of darkness and disorientation, seeking to go from strength to strength, from victory to victory. But such a way only ignores the Psalms. It is a lie in terms of our experience. The Jewish reality of exile, the Christian confession of crucifixion, and cross, the honest recognition that there is an untamed darkness in our life that must be embraced. All of that is fundamental to the gift of new life. What does it mean for us this morning to have an honest recognition that there is an untamed darkness in our life? What does it mean to embrace this morning this untamed darkness, and what is the cost if we do embrace it. As we've gone through this journey as a church through Psalm 23 in this season of Lent, as we prepare and move closer and closer to Holy Week, 
We land this morning in verse 4 on this very famous statement in the Psalms that's not merely known to the church, but it's known broadly in culture, the valley of the shadow of death. And just as an aside, when, when I'm asked to preach, which is you know, rare I get asked to preach, but when I do, um, you always kind of ask, why me? And, and when you're picked for the valley of the shadow of death guy, you kind of think, okay, yeah, what, what, what am I really offering my community of faith? Um, the, 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 ways of, the way of the Psalms shows us a pattern for our life if we listen carefully to what the Psalms can teach us. Uh, one way to look at this that Walter Brueggemann talks about in his commentary is that the Psalms teach us to move from what he calls orientation, disorientation, to new orientation. Orientation, that the Psalms show us where we are, who we are, and whose we are. It's a GPS locator of the soul. This is where you are in time and place and who are your people and what's going on. It orients us to remind us of those facts. But it also speaks to disorientation that even though we know who we're supposed to be, who our God is to be, what our community of faith is supposed to be, that crisis, loss, confusion, despair, hurt, pain happen. And that disorientation because we realize we're supposed to be this, but why is this happening and the Psalms also speak to disorientation, which verse 4 really speaks to this morning. But the hope of the Psalms also pushes us to new orientation as well, which is that once we've gone through confusion of loss, once we've dealt with the reality of our lives, the pain and the joy together, it takes us to a place of confidence, humility, growth, to see how we are supposed to be in the world. The poet T.S. Eliot put it really well in his poem, Little Gidding, that we are not to cease from exploration, but the end of all of our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know that place for the first time. Where we started and know that place for the first time. This is what it is for us when we go through periods of crisis and loss and darkness, isn't it? That we come back to Jesus as Lord with a much more humble way of looking at that. We come back to the promises of hope and love with a soberness in our heart, but a new orientation and honesty as we come. And this is what's at stake in this passage this morning in verse 4, the valley of the shadow of death. Last week, Eric took us through verse 3, where the psalmist is walking through and we hear he is led through the paths of righteousness. He's led on the paths of righteousness, which is orientation. But now in verse 4, we hear that he is walking, uh, in the Hebrew halak, he is walking through the valley of the shadow of death. And he's moved from being led, verse 3, to walking seemingly alone and where God is silent. And this shift of orientation and now being disoriented, why am I alone? What's going on? Why the shadows? Is this move to really deal with in our hearts too, what happened? In the matter of a verse things seem like they're on the right path of righteousness. And then we find in our lives almost instantly or through a series of events, we're in shadows and darkness. Why does that happen in our lives? The truth of life is this happens to all of us. That to live in the world is to experience suffering and pain and loss and darkness as much as light and joy and glory. We hear this in Ecclesiastes 9 where the sober truth of the writer of Ecclesiastes in verses 1 and 2 says, All this I've laid on my heart, examining it all, meaning his life. 
how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hands of God. Whether it is love or hate, one does not know. Everything confronts them seems to be vanity, since the same fate comes to all people, to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to those who sacrifice and those who do not. And then in verse 3, he continues and says, This is an evil in all that happens under the sun. The same fate happens to everyone. Jesus picks up this in in Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 43, where Jesus is unpacking this teaching to challenge us to love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And then he continues on to say this, so that you may be children of your father in heaven, for he makes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Psalm 23 creates a space that is consistent all the way throughout Scripture from the Old Testament through the ministry of Jesus to settle us in this reality that we can't move away from. Life will bring us periods of light and periods of shadows and darkness. We're going to experience joy in this life, and there's going to be sorrow. We find fulfillment, and there'll be times of loss. We will as Jesus says, have the rain fall on both the righteous and the unrighteous. Now, when I hear this, and I hear Jesus kind of backing up this theme and kind of moving this theme all the way through, and the psalmist sitting on this, I'm reminded of the movie The Princess Bride, of all things, um, where the grandfather, who's played by Peter Falk, is talking to his grandson, played by a young Fred Savage, and he's reading him a fairy tale in this movie. And this fairy tale has a princess, has evil princes, has giants, has battles. It's a typical fairy tale, so we think. And the boy is kind of nodding his head going along. This is how fairy tales go. Bad things happen, and then there's going to be a protagonist who's going to defeat the evil, and everything's going to be fine. And then at one point, as the grandfather's reading the story, one of the characters in the story notes that the main protagonist is dead. And the grandson says, wait. What did Fessick mean that he's dead? I mean, he didn't mean dead. Wesley's only faking, right? And the grandfather says, do you want me to keep reading this or not? No, no, no. Who gets Humperdinck? And the grandfather says, I don't understand. Who kills Prince Humperdinck? In the end, somebody's got to do it. Well, nobody. Nobody kills him. He lives. And the grandson just gets mad and says, Grandpa, why are you reading this to me? Um, And this is what I think the disciples are probably saying to Jesus as well. What do you mean the rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous? What am I working so hard for? You know, doing all these good things, and then you're going to tell me pain and suffering is going to happen as well? What is the point of life if I'm working so hard for these things and I'm going to suffer and have loss and disappointment? What is the purpose of loving if I know my heart will break? What's the purpose of trying to work on this thing if I know evil is still going to happen? Why would I even do it? Why are you reading me this thing, Jesus? What is the point? And this is what the psalmist brings us to is that there are ways in which we have to live with the reality that there is shadow in the world as much as light. And two ways to think about this, about the darkness that's talked about in this psalm, are what I'm going to call untamed and tameable darkness. Untamed and tameable darkness. By untamed darkness, these are the things in our life that are beyond our control. These are the realities of life that come, that block out the way of the path of righteousness in our life that we don't expect that silence the calm and peace that we're called for and leave us in chaos and confusion, the loss of a job, not getting into the school that we really wanted to when we were applying for college, which is very real for many college seniors right now, a relationship with a friend or a loved one that doesn't go well and ends, 
a diagnosis of cancer, the death of a loved one, wars and wars and wars that continue to go on with all the peace talks still in play. This is very much the untamed darkness of our lives that haunts real people, and maybe many of you as well. Writers like John Cassian in the early centuries of the church or poet theologians like Teresa of Avila or St. John of the Cross, and St. John is the one who coined the famous phrase, the dark night of the soul, really wrestled with this question of the untamed darkness of our world. To think about being a parent after the shooting in Parkland in Florida is to dwell with the seeming untamed darkness of our world. To watch a child slip away with the ravages of cancer into the valley of the shadow of death is an untamed reality in this world. To desire safety for your family in Syria and not seeing evidence of it ever ending, of this violence, is to live with seemingly untamed darkness in our world. And this part of our conversation, I'm hoping to bridge into the later part of what I'll talk about. But there's another part that I'll talk about first, which is the tameable darkness in our lives, the tameable part. These are the things we give into that bring darkness into our lives, that we ignore what we should be doing, that we walk into willfully into areas of shadow and away from the light, that we choose to not be accountable and we choose to live in privacy. We seek after things that kind of titillate our desires and know that they are not the best for us. This tameable aspect of darkness is very real too. And as a pastor and as a professor over the years, I have heard both of these very real stories in our lives of tameable and untamable darkness. And one thing that scripture shows us and the testimony of those who go through this darkness, this valley of the shadow of death have seen over and over, is that when we, 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 seek, the, when we seek after answers of why, why this suffering, why did my mother die? Why am I still alone when I want to be married? Why can't I find the healing in my heart and soul for that tragedy that happened so long ago and still lingering in my life? We're often left unsatisfied by the answers that come and the people that offer them. Even C.S. Lewis, you know, this great intellect, you know, wrote this wonderful intellectual argument about dealing with pain called the problem of pain. And then he was stripped of his arguments when his wife, Joy, dies of cancer. And in reflecting on the suffering and darkness that came from that, he wrote this reflection called A Grief Observed. And he, and he says these words, and I want you to hear this and see if any of this resonates with your experience. We, pro we are promised sufferings. They're part of the program. We're even told, blessed are they that mourn, and I accept it. I got nothing that I hadn't bargained for. But of course, it's different when the thing that happens is to oneself and not to another, and when it happens in reality and not in imagination. And then Lewis goes on to say this, no one ever told me that grief felt like fear. I'm not afraid, but the sensation is like being afraid. It's the same fluttering in the stomach. It's the same restlessness. There is a sort of invisible blanket between the world and me. It, I find it hard to take in what anyone says or perhaps hard to want to take it in. It's so uninteresting. Can you relate to Lewis in this? This feeling, this, this sense of what's going on when we're in this untamed or tameable darkness in our lives that perhaps maybe that's your place as well in the valley of the shadow of death right now. That there's a sensation of being afraid all the time. The sensation of this invisible blanket over you that's keeping the world and you apart and can't seem to get through it. And the world is attempting answers that are just so uninteresting 
in comparison to the weight of the darkness around you. So let's turn to verse 4 now and walk through it step by step. And in your bulletin, I've given you some fill-in-the-blanks. It looks like a Mad Libs in front of you this morning. Um, And I'm going to walk through these to fill them in, give you some thoughts on some of these breaking down of this passage of verse 4. And with each section that is there, I will pose a question. And this is my hope, that as we go through this point, I would like your soul to sit in where you find a need to hear God speaking in this passage to you this morning. There may be some areas that are not as relevant and some that are, but I will pose a question each time as a mini prayer moment for you to sit in. And as we go through the psalm, we'll also have time at the end of the service for you to reflect in prayer, to come forward, to be of prayer partners if God wants to do more work with you on this together. So first of all, the valley of the shadow of death. Let's, let's talk about tameable darkness in this way. There are different ways that we find ourselves in times of shadow of death that we depart from the the ways of righteousness of our own doing. And one way that I'm framing it is what's called one blade of grass at a time. One blade of grass at a time. When I, uh, one, one thing that's really important to know is that we don't find ourselves in despair and darkness by just choosing it like some big thing. Like, I know today I'm going to go wreck my entire family system. I'm going to destroy my job. I'm going to do that today, right? Destroying our lives is not something that people usually choose to do just on the spot as if nothing had ever happened in their life. When we lived in Scotland and I was teaching at the university there, I was invited from time to time to preach at local Church of Scotland parishes around the area. And there was one time that Diana and I were up near Loch Lomond at a small church And I was preaching a sermon on Matthew 25, which um, particularly about the the parable of the sheep and the goats that Jesus teaches on. And at the end of the service, after every service, you go down to the fellowship hall and there's a tea time where people kind of gather in this small parish. And while I was downstairs in this tea time, uh, this very dignified older Scotsman started walking towards me. And when an older Scotsman comes walking towards you, there's usually two things that are going to happen right at that moment if you're the person wearing the preacher's collar at that time. One, which has happened to me a lot, was when you're the only American in a room, they're going to come tell you what they think about the United States, right? So that's one thing that usually happens, right? Uh, But the other thing that I I felt like this is going to happen right now was that uh, the Scots um, have this way of talking about preachers who don't really get it right. And they say, that wasn't very sound preaching, right? It wasn't very sound, right? So I kind of had a sense this was going to happen. And so as he comes over, he introduces himself very cordially to me. And he leans forward into my face and he says, you know nothing. Just like that. And, it, and, it, and I was just like, and, and so, but before he could finish, and what I'm thinking in my heart is, yep, I'm a fraud. He's totally found out. I totally don't know what I'm talking about. Um, you're absolutely right. But he, but he completed it and he says, you know nothing, about sheep. <laughs> and, 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 he, and, and he was right. He was right. So, I mean, I grew up here in Seattle. I'm a Seattle kid. I went to Garfield High School. I'm a city boy. Um, and growing up, farm animals in my life were either animated, wore clothes, and talked on television, um, or they were an exhibit at the Woodland Park Zoo that were just kind of there behind cages when I went to concerts at Zoo Tunes or something. So, I mean, I don't have a lot of knowledge about farm animals. That's a fact. But, but what the man decided to tell me, he goes, one of the things that he, he gets really tired of people talking about sheep as dumb, like some kind of dismissive thing. And he said, you know, sheep are not so stupid as much as they are just so focused, so focused. 
And so, so much so that when they're eating grass, uh, as the grass gets shorter as they're eating it, they will actually kneel on their front legs and on their knees to get as close as they can to keep eating it. And their kneecaps and their little legs will start getting numb and they'll literally fall asleep and they'll fall on their face. And they have to get back up again and they just keep eating. They're driven by what they're doing. And this was counter to the idea of simply dumb. Uh, they're focused. So very focused, in fact, that they get lost one blade of grass at a time. When we talk about the parable of the sheep getting lost from the 99, the sheep get lost by following one blade of grass, by one blade of grass, by one blade of grass, by one blade, until they're gone. And so it is in faith with us. We too follow one blade of grass at a time and find ourselves all of a sudden, why am I in darkness? It's often the small, seemingly innocent things that we do that don't become so random when strung together and we see patterns. Um, this over Lent, our family has been working through the prophet Zechariah as our Lenten readings. And in chapter four, the prophet reminds the people of God to remember the day of small things, to remember the day of small things. That in trying to rebuild Jerusalem, the prophet is brought to this place of decimation and he challenges the people to understand that to build or destroy is gonna happen with little things little things that we do or don't do. This is the lesson that Alcoholics Anonymous has been teaching for generations. That it is not one day I decide to be a drunk and destroy my entire life. That on this day, I will pick up a glass or I will not pick up a glass. And that will lead to another and another and another. And this is why that phrase from Alcoholics Anonymous, one day at a time, is so vital for us as Christians to hear as well. Each day is a series of choices that we make to go towards the light or towards the shadow. So much so that people in addiction recovery oftentimes will wear a rubber band around their wrist and they'll snap it if they're feeling like they're going for that one blade of grass taking them in the wrong direction, to snap them back into reality on their wrist to let them know, oh, no, 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 I need to go back to what I know as Bell. So here's my question in that line for this one, for you. Is there a pattern in your life that is one blade of grass at a time going towards shadow, or are you walking towards light this morning? What is that one blade of grass for you possibly today? Another way that we can get into the ways of the shadows through tameable darkness is what is the will to power, the will to power. This is a famous phrase from Friedrich Nietzsche from his writing in The Gay Science that oftentimes humanity degenerates into choosing power over everything else. And Jesus saw this very clearly in his early ministry, in his public ministry, when he's brought out into the wilderness in the gospel accounts to be tempted in the wilderness by Satan. And Satan really sharpens the pencil and pushes this point with Jesus by saying, if you're the son of God, turn stones into bread when you're hungry, for goodness sake. If you're the son of God, just take charge of this world, throw yourself off something and show everybody how spectacular and powerful you are. Because in the end, it's going to be about power. Satan is challenging him. Take power, get noticed, be in control. How much of our lives do we choose power over faith in our daily day lives? How much do we use power as an excuse or supposedly a benevolent promise to how we are faithful? I can't tell you how many times I hear this phrase. Well, I'm working for this and I'm working for that so I can give it back to the Lord so I can give it back to the Lord, right? I'm building my career, so I can give it back to the Lord. I'm building my bank account, so I can give it back to the Lord. I'm building this house, so I can give it back to the Lord. It's this idea that power first, faith second, 
is the progression of how we are to live our lives, to get everything together and secure, and then I'll be benevolent and trust in the Lord. In what ways, this is the second question on this one, in what ways has power so eclipsed your life that it is the shadow under which you are living right now? The need to be in control, the need to have everything together. And in what ways have faith no longer been part of that conversation? How much has power become that for you? And third, another kind of truth that comes with this is the very simple statement, we are what we love. We are what we love. This goes all the way back to St. Augustine uh, when he talks about that we are shaped by the things that we love. John Calvin, the great French reformer, made the claim that human beings really are nothing more than idol-producing factories most of the time. I love that phrase. They were idol-producing factories. That human beings are built to worship something. They're built to worship, right? And Calvin even goes so far as to say that the word atheist doesn't even exist in the New Testament. This idea atheo in the Greek isn't even there because the question of the New Testament gospel accounts and the question of our lives isn't like if you're going to worship, it's you will. The question is what you're going to worship. The central concern of Jesus and Paul and all the testimony of the gospels is idolatry. Are you worshiping something other than the Lord of your life? And what is that idol in your life? We have been created in the image of God, which means our capacity to love and to be loved, and therefore to give ourselves completely and receive so much, is beyond our imaginations. And our capacity then, coupled with our ability to imagine what the good life could be, yet being in a broken and battered world, means that the idols that we can create can really eclipse the Lord in our lives. So my question in this line is this. Is there an idol that you are worshiping now and what is it? What holds your gaze so tight you can't turn away? What idol have you perhaps built so high that it's blocking out the light of Christ and it becomes the shadow that you are under at this day? So these are things that we can be distracted by and pull us into lives of shadow. But whether it is the untamable, the thing that we don't do or do, we still live in times of sorrow as well as light. And the psalmist then moves us into the reality of the fact that we fear and evil is real. And in that line, I would love for you to circle the word fear. I will fear no evil for you are with me. The word fear is an interesting one, yar in the Hebrew, because it really turns in its definition based upon the relationships that we have. There's three basic ways you could play out fear. One is to be terrified that I sit under and against the evil or the disappointment in my life and I am fearful of it. Another more extreme version on the other side is to be terrifying. Like I am the one who is the captain of my domain. I am the one who is going to conquer everything, right? This is the in it to win it crowd, right? I mean, this is the pos positivity statements. These are the, the, you know, the rally, you know, myself together and I'm strong. I'm going to take charge and do all this. I'm the captain of my ship. But there's a third way that fear is talked about. And in this passage, the psalmist wants to take us to this third way, which is similar to the phrase, the fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, which is that fear is a, can be a form of reverence or honor to understand who is worthy of our worship and to turn our attention so fully and completely on that, that that which is fearful diminishes right away. The psalmist wants to take us to this place to understand that I will fear not evil, 
but I will put honor with that who is with me. And that changes everything for us. To know that there is evil and darkness in the world, but it is not going to make me fearful, for my fear or honor of the Lord is going to be the strength. Not my own, not my bold statements, not my popular culture statements, not my t-shirt phrases, um, not my bumper stickers, but what the Lord has done. And how do we move into a place of honor and worship with the Lord? Well, two suggestions here at this point. One is that in order to move away from the temptation of being bold and courageous and strong on our own is what the writer Frederick Buechner said is being a good steward of our pain. To learn to be good stewards of our pain. In Matthew 25, Jesus tells a parable about a man who leaves on a journey and entrusts those in his household with what he calls talents, which is wealth. And he divides these talents up and then he departs and some of the members of the household take these talents or this wealth and they invest them. And when the man comes back who gave them, he's very pleased with the investments that he sees. But there is one man who is given one talent and who buries it deep in the ground and hides it because he's afraid that he may lose it, um, that the person who comes back will not be proud of him for what he did with it. So he buries it and hides it. And years ago, when I was chaplain at, at Seattle Pacific, we had the writer Frederick Buechner come to our campus and he chose this passage to talk to our campus about. And he told a story about sharing this passage from Matthew 25 with a small seminar group of people. And he, for years, he had heard this parable about all the good things we are supposed to offer in a benevolent fashion. Make money and share your talents. Be accomplished and share your talents. Get the college degrees and share that talent with the world, which are all good things to share. But he asked the question really about what are we really burying in the ground? Is that all we bury with our talents? And as he thought about it and reflected on it, Beekner thought about his own life and he realized the thing that he had buried in his life probably most deeply was the fact that his father had committed suicide when he was a young boy. And he had put that shame and disappointment and fear in the ground and he buried it. He had become a successful writer, nominated for the National Book Award, had you know, speaking engagements around the country, honorary doctorates. But underneath his feet, buried in the ground, was the shame of his father killing himself. The possibility that he too may lose control and kill himself like his father did. The shame of losing his father and not knowing how to tell that story and what it said about him. So he shared this with a small seminar group and he said possibly what the parable of the talents is about sharing everything not just the good stuff. And this woman comes up to him after the seminar and says these words to him, you have been a good steward of your pain today. And for Beekner, that changed his entire life. To understand that when we live in the valley of the shadow, maybe we want to be there because we want the pain of our life to be buried and hidden from the light of the Lord and from others. What would it mean for people to experience your losses, your, your confusion, your anxiety, your depression? The pain must be lived through like we need to go through the valley of the shadow of death, not ignored. That our talent is not only our good grades, the nice job, the titles and prestige we get valued in culture, but it's also the things like pain and confusion and disappointment that if we share with other people, it may actually be the window by which the light of the light Lord can be seen in you. What would it mean, my question at this stage is, for your life to un to unearth those things you've buried in your soul, including your pain and disappointment. Have you been a good steward of your pain, your loss, your journey? And what would it mean to unearth it 
so that more people could gain from your story and get courage in what the Lord can do. What comes to mind when you think about the Lord gazing upon you fully, including that which is buried, and to say to you, you are a unique, unrepeatable miracle of God. You are loved, and you deserve my love. What does it mean to hear those words, including that which is buried deep within you? And secondly, another thing that is part of moving out of the place of being of fear and moving more to the fear of the Lord is to realize, secondly, that we desire oftentimes a map in our lives, but what we really need is a guide. We desire a map in our lives, but what we truly need is a guide. Back in 1987, I was uh, with a group and we were traveling through Burkina Faso. And in, it was just a few years prior that Burkina Faso had reverted from being a French colony to national rule, and there was still a lot of political unrest in the country at that time. And there were factions in the streets, and it was getting dangerous, and so we were leaving, uh, to, leaving the capital city of Ouagadougou and traveling to Ghana. And we traveled at night at this point because the streets weren't safe, and so we were in this truck with this driver, and we're going through these back rural roads, and we had about 35 miles to go at night. And just suddenly, the headlights and all the electrical system in the car went out. And the truck was still running, and the driver was afraid that if he turned off the car, that the car wouldn't start up again. So we kept the car running, and he decided, well, I'm just going to keep driving. Um, now remember, this is 1987, right? No GPS, no cell phones, nothing. And I, we could see maybe two to three feet in front of us, right? It was a cloudy night. There was no moonlight to even guide us on these rural back roads. And I was scared. But the driver kept saying, I've driven this 100 times. 100 times, it'll be fine. And he just kept saying over and over, we'll be fine. We'll be fine. We'll be fine. We'll be fine. And I'm hearing all these noises, and I can't see a thing. Even if I had a map to unfold, I couldn't read it. It was so dark. It wouldn't have helped us at all. All I could trust in was the driver. No map. But the driver told me we will be fine. We live in an age where we have that mentality that if we have the right map, everything's going to be fine. So much so that so much of what populates the pews of Sunday morning are so many people who come in and sit in churches across America and around the world with this goal. How can I be so self-sufficient that I don't need another soul in this room? How can I be financially solvent, emotionally together, have it all together so that when I sit down in the pew, I've got everything to give, but I don't have to need anybody? What would it mean to actually be the church? <laughs> we admit that we need each other, that we don't have it all together, that we need a guide, and the map we're going with, it ain't working. <laughs> we're feeling lonely and lost and tired and broken, and we need a guide. Maybe we need each other as well for this journey. And so my question at this stage is, what map is guiding your life right now? What are the roadmaps of success that you're using? What are the metrics of performance that are guiding you? What are the street signs that you're using to go right or go left? And what would it mean to set down the map that you're using right now and trust in God as your guide? And this is, kind of takes us to the final point. What comfort do we have in this life in the midst of sitting in the midst of shadows? What does it mean for us as the church and how do we move forward and how do we become the solace for people in pain and loss and unanswerable questions in the valley of the shadow of death. Well, a couple of short things that I want to add to the end here, and the first one is this. Oftentimes, letting go is going to be the way forward. 
Oftentimes, letting go is going to be the way forward. I tell my students all the time in class that one of the things I'm constantly amazed by in Jesus's ministry is those who are followers of Jesus have this consistent theme of leaving something behind in order to follow. Everybody who follows Jesus lays something down in order to move forward. And we have it backwards so often in Christianity where we think that we have my life and I've just piled Jesus on this big cart on top of all the stuff in my life that that's all I need. I just need to add Jesus. But maybe we need to let something go so we can have more of Jesus in our life. The people of the Gospels are leaving things behind like businesses, dreams, painful pasts. They've been broken and now they have to live in a world where they're healed. They have to leave brokenness behind. Systemic places of hurt that they've defined as their community have to be left behind and risk finding a new community where they could have their heart broken all over again, but in order to move forward, they're going to have to let go and move forward. We become so accustomed in the valley of the shadow of death sometimes that even letting go of that and the possibility of something else is so paralyzing that we'd rather be in shadows. What would it mean for you to let go and move forward this morning? What are you holding on to that's keeping you possibly in a place of shadow and not letting you move forward? And the last two things are our commission this morning. And there are two things that I really want us to sit in as the church and as Bethany this morning is our identity. And the first is this, to live in the light of Christ is going to be meaning that we live as lampstands. Now that's a funny way to put it, to live as lampstands. In the book of Revelation, the first chapter, we hear in this picture of the new Jerusalem that the church is defined as lampstands, as seven lampstands. And that's not a new thing at the end of the Gospels. Actually, we have it all the way through the Old Testament. The use of lampstands is this really powerful image. In Zechariah, the prophet Zechariah, who I mentioned earlier, we have a, this lampstand that is standing in the middle of the new Jerusalem that is fueled by olive trees that are literally dropping olives on the ground, being crushed into oil and firing this lampstand for the community to see. And this image of lampstand is a really apt one for us in the valley of the shadow of death. Because I think that's who we are. We are lampstands in the valley of the shadow of death as a church. And three things about the lampstands I want you to hold on to are these. First of all, lampstands are located in specific places. Specific, they're grounded in a place. Bethany is in a place here in Seattle. We reach out around the world. We are in communication. But there's a particular place. You, as lampstands, in your schools, in your places of work, in your homes, in your neighborhoods, that's a very specific place that God has planted you in the ground of that place as a lampstand in that place. What would it mean to be a lampstand in your place? Secondly, the lampstands stand tall. They stand tall. They're up above the ground for a reason, so that they can be used and seen from far away. Oftentimes, as the church and oftentimes as Christians, maybe we crouch a little bit in our places of work. We bend down a little bit. We don't want to stand up tall and say, you know what? I'm a Christian. I follow Jesus Christ. My life is seriously messed up. I'm working on that. Um, but you know what? I'm trusting in the Lord, and I don't even know how it's even going to end. Full stop. <laughs> you know, this is who I am. I'm confused by things. You know, and the way we're talking right now, there's some ways in which I want you to know this is who I am. What does it mean to stand up as people of faith in your schools with your friends, with the people you work with? What does it mean to be a tall lampstand and talk about what it means to be in faith in that way? And third, lampstands shine a light that's not their own. They shine a light that is not their own. They are given the light by God. This light that we have been given as the church as Bethany is not ours. 
It is not ours to hoard and to hold and to hide. It is ours to open up so that the shadows get chased from the room. It is to show the light in an untamed, dark world that the light of love is here. That's what it means. But oftentimes, we can maybe put the wrong light bulb in our lampstand. When I was a kid in the 70s, let me tell you, being a kid in the 70s, that's a whole other conversation. But in the 1970s, I had on my wall a couple of uh, these really cool fake velvet black light posters. I don't know if you've ever had black light posters. But I had this poster on my one wall as a kid of a black panther and another one of a poster of the solar system. And they were these fake velvet black light posters. And if you put a black light bulb in your light bulb thing and you flicked it on, all of a sudden all these crazy images would show up you couldn't see with the other light. So when I get home from school, I'd unscrew the light bulb and my desk lamp, and I'd put this little black light bulb in. I'd flick it on. It's like, oh, that's really trippy. That's really cool. Um, and all these weird things would show up on, the, on, on there. But here's the thing about a black light in your lampstand. It's only good for that poster. It's only good for that. You can't read by it. You can't do your homework by it. certainly can't read scripture by it. But you can see some weird things about a black panther on a wall, but you can't really do anything else with it. How many times in our world are we choosing the refraction, and the wavelength of light because we have a poster we want to make sure that we see. To be a lampstand is we show the real parts of our world, not the light bulb that only shows the joy, not the light bulb that only shows the pain, but the real light of God that shows both exist. Sorrow, joy, commingle, it's difficult, it's rocky. This is what it means to be in that space. Which brings us to our last calling, which is this, and it's taken from a song by, a song by a Canadian songwriter, Bruce Coburn, which is that the call of the church is to kick at the darkness until it bleeds daylight. We're to kick at this darkness till it bleeds daylight. This is from a song by Bruce Coburn titled Lovers in a Dangerous Time, and I, and I think of that as really the commissioning of the church. We are lovers in a dangerous time. We are people who are called to be followers of a crucified Lord who understood untamed darkness in ways that are just absolutely beyond the pale, but also a risen Lord who walks into these places of darkness and provides comfort and solace, hope and promise, not flinching from the darkness, but walking through it with us. So this is my question for you today. As we now go into a time of response, I call you to pray on what notes you've made, what thoughts you've made on this. Where are you in the valley of the shadow? Is it an untamed darkness that you did not ask for in a crisis you cannot answer, and the answers that even are asked or even given you are uninteresting? How do you find solace in the community to be good stewards of that pain so we can listen to you and learn from you and be together as a community? And for those of us who find a tameable darkness, are there areas we need to lay that down this morning? this blade of grass we keep chewing on that may be taking us further away from what God intends for us. Where are you in this story this morning? So let me pray for us as the band comes out and use this time of response to come forward and pray with prayer leaders, pray where you are, make some notes to yourselves. Where are you in this time and how can you experience what it means to be God's people by laying down this and moving forward to the light of God? Let's pray. Gracious God, we ask that you meet us as your people in times of darkness. We find the reality of it chilling and the unanswerable aspects of our loss hard to reconcile. But you call us, Lord, to move closer to you. So help us to wait, Lord, on you and to heal our souls 
to make our souls well by knowing you and bring us into the reality as children of yours that we can follow you into the light through these valleys. Equip us to be your church, Lord. Your lamp stands in this time and this place, we ask. Amen.